All right, we're about to start, and I've got a couple of announcements to remind everybody about. First of all, is there's going to be the men's prayer breakfast this Saturday morning, and so that's at 7.30. Just encourage everyone to be here. Uh, we had a great time. I think there was a great turnout at the Thanksgiving slash Christmas uh, luncheon, and I think that was just tremendous to see everybody and to meet some of the new people, and we had uh, quite a few of the younger couples here, and that was just really tremendous uh, to see all of that. And so it's good to have these times when we can get together and get to know one another in our local uh, assembly. Reminder that there'll be Bible class this Thursday night, next Tuesday night, but not next Thursday night, because on Friday night we'll be having our special uh, Christmas Eve communion service, and that is at 6 o'clock in the evening. And so for those of you who live on the left coast, you're just going to have to log get off of work early Christmas Eve and log in to, to catch that. And then um, also remember to pray for Jeff Phipps while he's leaving. He's leaving, what is it, tomorrow, the day after tomorrow. And then... Uh, an update on Pastor Bruce Bumgardner, pastor of Pine Valley. And, um, you know, Bruce and I don't get together very much, but we are uh, very close friends and uh, really have, usually when we do have lunch, it ends up being three or four hours. So, um, and uh, he is doing better. He's home, got home last Thursday. He went home and he's doing good. He just said to uh, pray for his uh, pain, level of pain and keeping the pain down and his recovery, because he had a quintuple bypass. So his recovery is going to take, you know, more than uh, three or four days. So uh, encouraging there. And then also an update on John Height is that he, um, I got a chance to call him, call him. I finally got his daughter's phone number, the one that was up there at the hospital called and she put it on speakerphone and put the phone next to his ear and he was um they had him sedated and he was just just lying there and as soon as he heard my voice his, his body jerked and his eyes kind of opened and and caught his attention and so I prayed with him and and then the next day the doctors came in and he had turned a big corner and he was doing much better that would have been that was yesterday, wasn't it? So yesterday, I talked to him. I couldn't believe it had gone just, just that short period of time. Maybe it was Saturday night I talked to him. I can't remember. I think it was Sunday. And um, and so he's um, he's about 95% back. His blood oxygen level is good. They took the... Uh, uh, he was intubated. They took the, the tube out. I guess it was yesterday morning. His voice was kind of hoarse. and um, But they're going to put him in a, on, down on a regular floor probably tomorrow. They had him doing a little physical therapy today. He's been, uh, he's been in bed for, uh, I think, or it doesn't say in this email, I think it's been uh, four weeks. So that's tough when you're... Uh, over 55, because muscles will start atrophying, you know, and all these things happen. Just continue to pray for Peggy Ingram, Dan's sister, because she's 75 or something like that, right? And she's still going through her recovery, and 
everything because she was, I think she was in bed for about six or seven weeks. It was a long time. So that's, that's hard on, on these folks. So be, be in prayer for them. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. After a few moments of silent prayer, then uh, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are indeed grateful that we can come together tonight. We look out at our world, and it is chaotic. And it is difficult to explain how it could go so sideways so quickly. But we know that that you are in control and that this is your permissive will. And that that permissive will has restrained evil through much of the church age, and what we're discovering is that during this, these last several decades, your restraint has slowly, slowly, slowly backed off. And maybe this is what's setting the stage for the tribulation. Uh, I think just about everything does, but that doesn't mean it's any time uh, this month or this year or this decade or next decade. But, Father, we know that you're in control, and so we trust you. We can relax. We don't have to worry about anything and we probably have to confess that worry quite a bit, but uh, we just need to learn to trust you. Father, as we study in Judges, it gives us a real uh, reflection in the past of the kind of thing that's going on here. And so, Father, I just want to ask you to guide and direct our thinking as we go through this and help us to understand these things in a way that de- it's not scary or depressing, but it's a, a way that gives us insight and that helps us relax a little bit knowing what's going on. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1 tonight. Romans chapter 1. And if you want to, you can, you can stick a finger in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I think it is. Yes, indeed. So we'll look at a couple of different, different things. In the previous lessons, we had seven lessons on Deborah and Barak coming out of Judges 4 and 5. And this was a unique passage in Scripture. Well, not truly unique. It is one of only two places in Scripture where we have the narrative account of of a battle, and it is followed by a psalm of deliverance and thanksgiving that tells the story of the battle in poetry. 
And in both of these, we have a role played by a woman. We have Miriam identified as a prophetess in Exodus, and she is leading the women in the chorus in an antiphonal response to Moses and the men as they are singing the main part of the hymn. In Judges 5, we have Deborah and Barak who sing this victory psalm. And uh, again, Deborah has been identified as a prophetess and that she judged Israel. What's interesting is both of these passages are highlighting a significant role that a woman plays, but Deborah's is more than what is going on with Miriam. Miriam's just a prophetess. But Deborah is identified as more than that because she is one of these uh, shofetim, these judges who ruled over Israel that God raised up as, as deliverers. And she has a distinctive role. Most of the other judges that function and operate um, in their role have a military dimension to them. She does not lead the troops into battle. She sort of, after she gets Barak squared away and the troops pointed in the right direction, we don't hear any more from her. In fact, the only woman that shows up is Yael at the end. So in this interesting narrative, there's two women who are, are, are brought, to the, uh, brought into our focus. And this makes it a distinctive episode in Israel's history uh, in that you have the defeat of this Canaanite king, Yavin, uh, defeated by a somewhat reluctant general, Barak, at the order of God, and his order is mediated through a prophetess, and that is Deborah. And then when the coup de grace of the battle takes place, it's another woman, Yael. And we ask the question, well, what's going on here? Because if we're astute readers of the Bible, we know that if we started in Genesis 1 and we come all the way through to Judges 4, that we haven't seen a woman play a role in this way. Women are noted for many other things that are, uh, that are evident, such as the, the role of Eve, the role of... Um, uh, uh, of Sarah, the wife of Abraham, uh, Rebecca, and uh, and uh, also uh, we notice that and and the wife Rachel of of Jacob are, are all highlighted. Some of the others play some sig- significant roles. Some from a negative perspective. Some from another. Miriam is highlighted twice. Once because she is a leading the women, and the next time she shows up in November, she's trying to foment a rebellion against Moses. Uh, she and Aaron have got the tr- everybody stirred up and want to cause trouble. But we don't see any, any other place in the history of Israel where we see a woman play a role uh, of, that, uh, of quite that significant. So it ought to cause us to say, well, what's going on here and why? And I think there's a number of reasons that God desired for this event to be recorded in this book and in this particular location. Now, one of the things we should note is that this episode is uh, particularly uh, 
noteworthy because in our modern era of uh, feminism, Deborah is often used as an icon of feminine. She's an uh, example of what women can do when they are somehow liberated from the shackles of patriarchy and male dominance. And often in our own era, we hear more and more of women prophets and women preachers and pastors. And even in conservative circles, debates still swirl around whether the Bible allows for women pastors or women preachers. Where there are deep divisions over the legitimate roles of women and men within the home, within business, within church and and politics, there's often a, a blur of bad exegesis, faulty theology, and cultural um, uh, cultural superiority. We have to think about these things. Um, we live in a time when there are many conflicts within the church and without the church over sexual identity, sexual practices, and the roles of the of the different sexes. Now, I'm using the word sexes instead of gender because I think gender was snuck into our vocabulary as a synonym for the sexes with, a, with an agenda, with, with an um, ulterior motive. Because I'm old enough to remember when you didn't talk about two genders or a male gender and a female gender, but you talked about male sex and female sex. And I think there's something sitting with the word gender was a word that was a grammatical term. And I was still, still remember my first day almost in first year Greek in seminary when Zane Hodges made the comment as he's introducing nouns and he said, men, because that was in the days when you didn't have any ladies in the classroom at Dallas Seminary because its purpose statement was to train men to be pastors. That changed in the early 80s. But he said, men, people have sex, words have gender. Don't get that confused. And that's a kind of statement that always sticks with you. Gender, what is a term that was to identify uh, certain forms of nouns? And that in Greek, for example, uh, uh, it's, it's a, a, a language that has uh, various endings and uh, words. We don't have that in English where you have male nouns, female, uh, masculine nouns, feminine nouns, and neuter nouns. And in an inflected language, that's what you have, Latin, Spanish, German, Italian. Uh, these all are inflected language, but it's not that way in English. So in English, we usually refer to something that's impersonal, like a table, with a sort of a, an impersonal pronoun like it. And if it's obvious that something is a, related to something feminine, then it's a she, it's a boat, it's a she, if, you know, different things of that nature are she's. Hurricanes used to be she's, now they're hemicanes or whatever, I don't know. But... Um, You've got these these different things. It all gets messed up because of our confusion over the role of men and women and their purpose and their function and their identity. And so 
when the culture shifts on these things, that is the the world, the thinking of the world, then it always puts pressure on the church, on Christians to conform. That's why Paul says in uh, Romans 12, do not be conformed or pushed into the mold of the world. And there it's not the word cosmos, it's the word uh, ionos, which means the spirit of the age, the thinking of the age, the, the thing that, that the way most people look at life. Don't get pressed into that mold, but be transformed by the renovation of your thinking. So right there, we already see that as far as a, Paul is concerned, as far as the Bible is concerned, as far as God's concerned, there's a right way to think about things and a wrong way to think about things. And there's not an in-between area to think about most things. So you, in inflected languages, you have masculine, you have feminine nouns, and you have uh, a neuter nouns. In, in a, some languages, I'm most familiar with German because I had several years of it, you have nouns such as Mädchen, which is for a young girl, usually an adolescent girl, Fräulein, an unmarried uh, young woman. And these are, these are neuter nouns. Now, this may be something ladies can't relate to, but men can. There's not much about a young woman in her late teens and early 20s that's neuter. Maybe today, but, you know, they are at the, usually at the prime of their attractiveness in, in that age range. But, and you have words that you might think in English that refer to something masculine and, and it's a feminine noun or the other way around, a window is a feminine noun, defenster. Hmm. There's nothing necessarily feminine or masculine about a window. We would say that it's an it. So gender doesn't have anything to do with describing something in terms of something related to sexuality. It has to do with three ways to identify forms of nouns, the morphology of nouns. Some fall in one class, some fall in another class, some fall in a third class. And so somewhere in the midst of time, these were categorized in terms of masculine, feminine, and neuter. But they don't have, it has nothing to do with uh, the sex of the object or the person or anything of, of that nature. And so gender, though, was one of these things that's it's a grammatical term, and it slipped in. And I don't believe these things get slipped in without somebody somewhere having an agenda. And we usually discover that some years, uh, some years uh, down the road. And so it appears that from the outset, this shift was done on purpose. Because if we talk about a person's sex, it's pretty obvious we've got a binary option here. And it's pretty much determined by physical features and by genetics, by DNA. You have men and you have women. And that should be determinative. But when you have changed the vocabulary from sex to gender, now gender becomes a social construct. And it is something that is determined by the individual. It's subjective because as we shift into postmodernism, uh, truth is determined subjectively. It's not, it doesn't have an objective basis anymore because whatever is true is what's true for you. 
So you wake up today, you feel a little frilly, you, you say, oh, I feel like a girl. I'm going to be a girl today, and you better call me. You better be able to look at me and know that you should call me by the right pronoun, or I'm going to take you to court. And in the state of New York, you're going to get some hefty fines if you don't call somebody by the appropriate pronoun. And there's all kinds of different pronouns. So gender allows us to develop multiple genders. Last I researched, there were 70-something genders. How can they keep up? That's, that's, that'll cover more than two months. You can go two months and not repeat yourself and start all over again. So you can go six months, uh, six cycles during a year and cover each one six times and you have everybody confused. So I want to use the word sex to communicate in this, in this lesson. Now, 20 years ago, when I taught the book of Judges, prior to that, I'd probably taught the book of Judges maybe 15 times in the previous 20 years. And, but that wasn't all to the same church or all to the same group. One time when I was in Houston, I taught eight Bible classes a week, but each one was in a different office building with a different group of people. So I could just have one lesson. It went good for the whole week. And um, so I studied Judges a lot, and when I taught it the last time, uh, when I got to Judges 4 and 5, I front-loaded by talking about that God has distinct roles for men and women, and he's made men and women, males and females, with that, those purposes in mind. And we'll get to some fascinating things that have been uh, studied I have an article that lists uh, uh, pages of differences between men and women biologically that have nothing to do with sex. One of those is that women here with four different parts of their brain and men here with one part. Don't go there, okay? <laughs> I could read those minds out there. So, and there are many other things like that. Women see more colors and they're more vibrant than men for the most part. Now, if things like this don't hold true all the time, we've got a lot of problems because we live, I hate to use a word, but it's good. We live in a broken world with broken bodies and it's all because of sin. I like the word corrupt. And that has a role to play in a lot of these things that sin is, is, a, is a corrupting influence. But since I taught this 20 years ago, we've got another problem. We've got an explosion of this transgenderism. Now, there were transgenders 20 years ago and 30 years ago, and we talked about them, and there were people as far back as I can remember laughing about it in high school that people would start having sex change operations. But it's just exploded in the last few years. So I think it's important that we not only address the role of men and women biblically, we have to understand what do we mean by maleness and what do we mean by femaleness? Because if we look at Genesis 1, 26 to 28, God specifically creates male and female, both according to his image. But there's that distinction made right from the beginning. And there's a significance to that which gets developed 
as, as, we go, as we go forward. And so when we look at these things in the Bible, we need to ask, well, what's going on here? What answers does the Bible give us if we're living in a situation where suddenly we have a son or a daughter who starts playing with the toys usually associated with the opposite sex, or if they seem to be attracted, a boy, he seems to be attracted to uh, dolls that his sister plays with, or the girl tends to be a tomboy. And I think it's just downright child abuse, criminal child abuse for any parent to even think that their child is somehow a mistake and should be the other sex. And to take them to a doctor, to take them through any kind of drug therapy, or to, and to go to surgery, for the laws of the land to say that parents ought not to be informed of these matters is, just shows how far we have fallen. This is pure idiocy. How do we understand it? How can we explain all these things that have happened in the last few years? And how do we as Christians, as Christian grandparents or Christian parents, how do you deal with this if this happens in your family? Now, do I have all the answers? Certainly not. I don't think I have all the answers on anything, except I do know how to get saved and end up in heaven. I'm sure of that. And I know that whatever else happens, that's where I'm going to end up. But no, I don't have all of that, but I know where to point people for help. And there's, some, there's a lot of work being done on this right now by very conservative Christians who are publishing articles, and I'm trying to find the time to weigh, work my way through this. But whenever we start talking about these things, there's always those people who, because of uh, other agendas, because they don't want the church to be different from the world. The church is always different from the world. If the church doesn't look different from the world, it is no longer the light of the world. The world has come in. There, there is this, this absolute breakdown that occurs um, as a result of of uh, God's God, uh, as a result of carnality, it just just destroys everything. And there are absolute lines and absolute boundaries that God has established. And so I set this up in terms of the title as choices, because it's always a choice. It comes down to volition. And what are those choices? The fundamental, foundational choice for every human being. It's stated in Romans 1, 18 to 31, worship the creator or worship crea- the creation. Uh, those, those are the options. Now, I was working on this earlier. I put it in the wrong place, but here it is. These are the same two options. In the past, I've used human viewpoint versus divine viewpoint. Divine viewpoint is worshiping the creator. Human viewpoint is re- worshiping the creature. But another way to put it is Bible or Babel. We either follow what the Bible says or we follow the worldview that gave birth to the globalism and the rebellion against God at the Tower of Babel. All through the scripture, you have these these two contrasts between Jerusalem, the city of God, the Zion, the, the, where God has placed his name, or Babylon the site of the rebellion against God under Nimrod, where God had to bring judgment, scatter the people by means of confusing their language. 
And another way to look at it is a biblical worldview or the biblical worldview, because there's only one biblical worldview. There's only one divine viewpoint. God doesn't have multiple viewpoints. There's one consistent, united viewpoint that's presented in the Scripture, and everything else is contrary to that. And what you have when you go back to look at the, uh, go back to look at the title that I put up here is that that is basically worshiping the creator or worshiping the creation. And I'm going to suggest that those are the only, you can reduce all worldviews to that. Okay? Now that's hard for some people to get. The first time I heard somebody make a comment, and I've got one of his quotes in here, the first time I heard somebody make a comment on that, I went, now wait a minute, I think that's just too simplistic. But I've read a lot, I've studied a lot, and I've thought a lot. And I, I think that's true. Even Islam, ultimately, if you really know it, it is, it is reducible to the worshiping the creature, not worshiping the creator. Now, one simple way you can say that, that I believe, and I'm going to offend every Muslim in the world, and that's fine with me, and that is that, that Muhammad did indeed meet an angel in a cave who gave him the Quran. But that angel was Satan or a, or a messenger from Satan. And that Allah is really just another name for Satan. Allah, even though the name may be some cognate to the generic name for El or Elohim in the Bible, we all know that's just a generic name for God. And Allah is not talking about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because he is not. He is the God of Abraham and Ishmael. And that he is not the God of the Jews who has entered into a covenant with the Jews, so he's not the God of the Bible. He is someone else because he hates the Jews and he hates the Christians. And in the Quran, in the end times, the Muslims will be called to rise up and to slaughter all of the Jews and all of the Christians, all of the Saturday people and all of the Sunday people. That's not the same God as the God of, of the Bible. And so this is a different God, and I believe it's just a, if, if as we've studied in Deuteronomy 33, that behind every idol and behind every God in the various mythologies and pantheons, there's a demon. I think behind Allah is Satan himself. I think it's a, a satanic religion from the pit of hell, which means it's worshiping the creature again instead of worshiping the creator. So everything ultimately is going to be reducible to uh, worship the creator or worship the creation. And as I said, this is divine viewpoint versus human viewpoint. It is biblicist versus worldliness. It is um, it's, it's worshiping the God of the Bible or being, being a pagan. It's really reducible to those things. So we see what is happening in Judges. Let me take you back a little bit. What's the big problem in Judges? Israel comes out of, of um, the conquest. They've been trusting in God. They have victory over the Canaanites. But then they begin to compromise and compromise and compromise. And what's happening is that they are abandoning God and they are... Uh, worshiping the Baals and the Asherah. Now, what are the Baals and the Asherah? These are the gods and goddesses, represent the gods and goddesses in the uh, Canaanite pantheon. 
And what do they represent? They represent the forces of nature. So you're worshiping the forces of creation. You're worshiping the nature, and everything gets reducible to that. And that, as we're going to see, is worshiping the creation, not the creator. So it's ultimately going to be reducible to, uh, to monism, and we'll see what that means in, in, in just a little bit. But what really got me thinking about this, because it helped me answer some questions, was one of our speakers at, uh, at pre-trib last week was a man by the name of Carl Teichrib, who is a researcher. He's, he's taught in Bible colleges and seminaries, and this guy does what I could never do. So he has the temperament I don't. He goes to all these bizarre conventions, New Age things, whatever it might be, and big things, you know, World Economic Forum, he gets an invitation to that. And he takes his little team, and they set up their booth, and they're the Christians that are there, and they use it as an opportunity to witness, but also just to ask a lot of questions. Remember, how many times you hear me, you've heard other pastors say, watch scriptures, how many times? God just doesn't tell people things. He asks them questions to get them to think about things. And so they're asking questions to get people to think about things, but also to find out what they're there for, what they think they're getting out of it, what the agenda of their organization is, and all of these different uh, different things. And they go into some uh, pretty strange and, and weird things. But what they're discovering is that our whole Western culture, in line with the rest of the world, is moving very fast toward globalism. And that's what these two messages were about. And I know it's a busy time coming up to Christmas but we're going to post these links up on the DBM website and probably send out an email with the links. I encourage everybody to watch. It's not one of these doom and gloom things. I was had lunch today with a longtime friend of mine, and I told him, I, you know, I sent you those links. I encourage you to listen to that. He says, oh, you know, I'll just be depressed. I said, no, I hate these doom and gloom reports. Now, I know most of you probably, I'm being facetious here, have never heard a pastor give a doom and gloom message. I don't like doom and gloom messages because the Bible's supposed to be somewhat optimistic and often doom and gloom. That's what it does. It's, it, it's how you structure your material. It, it's not necessarily the content. And I didn't feel overwhelmed or discouraged or anything when I list, after listening to this guy's uh, presentations, but I was educated. And what the education, see, Betty's nodding her head there because Dick and Betty were there and a number of other people here were there. It was sobering. I knew all of this was out there. I didn't know how extensive it was. But it also answered a lot of questions. It helped me understand what was going on. And one of the most important things that we can learn from this kind of thing is to understand what is going on so we don't get taken in or deceived by it are distracted by it. We've got to keep our eyes off of the waves and onto the Lord. But we understand that the waves are there. And, and it, it, it helps us to understand some things. And if you're a parent or you're a grandparent, you need to understand that this is all the way through the curriculum in every subject matter at school that your kids are getting. And you need to forearm them, forewarn them, get them out of public school maybe if necessary and put them into a good uh, Christian school, homeschool, whatever. But this is, this is the brainwashing of the world system in our generation. And that's what you ran into in Judges because they were getting this in the whole culture around them. These Canaanites that they let live, that's why God wanted every man, woman, and child killed. 
And so that influence wouldn't be there. But when that influence is there, and you see a Canaanite family, and they seem prosperous and happy, and they've got good crops, and you don't, and the the man is going up and having uh, sexual relations with the temple prostitutes three or four times a week to make sure that the gods will uh, prosper him, uh, then that presents a great temptation for a lot of men to do the same thing. It's culturally accepted. That's how we... Uh, that's how we fertilize the fields, so to speak. And that's what was going on. And today, we just get the second verse, same as the first. It just goes back to all of this stuff. But we get into this issue with the roles. I want to say something about that just in terms of an overview before we get into uh, some of the other material. One of the things that has been an ongoing debate since at least the early 60s has been this topic of the role of women in ministry. And there's some excellent books out there. Wayne House wrote an excellent book on this, and there have been several, a number of others. There's even an organization called the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood that's been putting out a journal for about the last, uh, I think, uh, 25 or 30 years with excellent articles dealing with arguments and issues and things like that that come up. And now they have a new one that is called icon, which is the Latin word for image. And uh, it's, only, it's only had four issues come out, but most of the articles seem to address these gender, con- I'm using their term, gender confusion issues that are challenging our culture and that seem to have really deceived a lot of people. And it just comes right down to this choice, biblicism or paganism. That's the option. Biblicism or paganism? Do you want to be a biblicist or do you want to be a pagan? There's no middle ground. You can't have one foot on one side and one foot on the other side. That's, that's what it comes down to. And one of these issues, it's very, very difficult for a lot of people who, especially the more they've grown up outside of a Christian milieu and not being taught uh, the scripture, uh, are these issues related to uh, <clears throat> the role of women. And so we're talking about our passage in Deborah. And one one book by a couple of uh, well-known evangel- evangelical broad term, means any, could mean anything, have written. And one of the things that they say is that uh, they say, quote, for instance, in Judges 4 and 5, Deborah exercises authority as a judge and even tells Commander Barak what to do. Okay. And then secondly, they say, Junia. Second example is Junia in Romans 16.7. I didn't get that on a slide. Romans 16.7 functioned as an apostle. And so she had an authoritative ministry role that should not be denied women today. So you might want to turn to Romans Romans 16.7. If you went to 1 Corinthians 11, just turn back a few pages and you'll get to Romans 16, 7. This is in that long list at the end of Romans when Paul is making various comments and greetings uh, to different people. And he says, did I get the verse wrong? 16, 7. I'm looking at 17. Uh, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen and my fellow prisoners who are of note among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. A couple of things to note there is they could be a man and a wife. Junia is a name that can be a name for a man or a name for a woman. 
It could be either way. So you don't know whether it's talking about Andronicus and his wife or could be two brothers, could be two friends, two guys who uh, had ministry together, but you don't know. But the word for countryman indicates someone who is related by blood, uh, not in a near sense, but in a, in a tribal sense. Uh, so they uh, are my countrymen and fellow prisoners. So they have also been arrested by Paul. Uh, Nero is the emperor. He's arrest, arrested by Paul. and But then it says, who are of note among the apostles. So the first assumption that these theologians make is that Junia is a woman, and that's far from settled. There's nothing in the text to indicate it one way or the other. And then... Um, it says you are of note among the apostles. And the word there that is, that is uh, translated uh, among the apostles uh, is, is a word that could just be um, in the midst of the apostles or in association with the apostles. It doesn't necessarily mean they are apostles. A.T. Robertson, who has a five volume, for, for younger students in the Word, uh, it's a great uh, five volume set. He's not always right, but he's very good. And he was a, the outstanding Greek scholar in America in his generation, which is back around the turn of the last, the last century. And he said, naturally, this means that they are counted among the apostles in the general sense, true of Barnabas. James, the brother of Christ, Silas, and others. These were, you have, apostle is used in a strict sense to refer to the 11 or the 12, as it's often said in Scripture. And then there are others who were, it all depends on who sends them out. That's the basic meaning of the word apostle, is to be sent out and commissioned to a task. Well, if Christ commissioned you to take the gospel and make disciples, uh, that was only for the 11 or the 12. Okay, But if a church commissioned you, like they commissioned Barnabas and others, Silas, they are apostles in a secondary sense that would be close to being a missionary. They don't have the gift or the position of being an apostle. They're just one who is sent out. So uh, these were some of their associates and uh, ministered along with them. And it's very possible, and this is what A.T. Robertson saying, and it said, but it can simply mean that they were famous in the circle of apostles in the te- technical sense. They're not one of the 12, but they are well known by, by the apostles. And then it says, who have been in Christ before me, and that is that they were saved before Paul was. It's a perfect tense verb. So they're saved in the past, they're still saved. Okay, but what they do is they come along and they try to make this argument there. And they always go to Deborah. Always, always, always. I've never had a deep discussion on this issue without somebody saying, well, God had Deborah. Look at Deborah. She was a prophet in the Old Testament. Well, first of all, you don't understand the argument of judges. Number two, you don't understand what a prophet is. Number three, you're letting something that is vague and uncertain be the basis of how you're interpreting specific, detailed New Testament commands. So you have three strikes against you, and you're out. But we're going to talk about these things as we go along. 
Now, one of the things we should note as, as we do this is that there are both in the Old Testament and New Testament women who are identified as prophetesses. I've talked about Miriam and Deborah. There's Huldah, and little more is said about her other than identifying her as a prophetess. But what we do have detail with both Miriam and Deborah is that they sang, and that is uh, identified as prophecy in Chronicles. We've looked at these passages before in Chronicles where it says those who played the lyre and um, the other stringed instruments and the tambourines prophesied in, uh, in the temple. They do it with music. And so that's, that's a really obscure thing. But when you have Saul with the, uh, goes among the prophets and he's prophesying with the prophets, that doesn't make sense if you're taking prophecy to be the kind of thing that Moses did or the kind of thing that Isaiah did or Jeremiah. That just doesn't make sense at all that they're walking along, coming down the mountain, and they're prophesying together. But if it has this sense of singing praise to God, Yes, that makes much more sense. And so that would apply at least in two of the three Old Testament cases that we know of. The other one just doesn't give us any information one way or the other. In the New Testament, there's a couple of passages that that, uh, give us some information about this. And I'm just going to, we'll come back to them in detail, but I'm just going to go through them briefly um, right now. So in 1 Corinthians uh, 14.31, Paul is giving the rules and regulations for prophecy in the local church. Now, this is written at a time when the sign gifts, prophecy, tongues, miracles, uh, healings, interpretation of tongues, when these were still active. They were temporary and they died out uh, as a result of the completion of the canon. And he says somewhat sarcastically, he says, oh, you can all prophesy one by one, don't everybody blather at the same time, but you can prophesy one by one that all may learn and may be encouraged. So prophecy has to be in the same language as your hearers because they need to learn and be edified and to be strengthened and encouraged in the faith. So it's the content is important. When he says, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. So what that means is somebody comes in and claims to have the gift of prophecy and he's got, uh, uh, and God has revealed something to him, then he's going to be judged and evaluated by the other prophets. It checks and balances. So if this guy's off base theologically or anything else, then, then he's going to be disciplined for it. And that's explained in verse 33, by the fact that God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. In other words, you get people saying all kinds of things, saying, well, God told me to say this, and God told me to say that, and it contradicts each other, and all these different... That's confusion. God is not the, God is not the author of confusion, uh, but peace. So th- what we learned there is that this was during a time when there was a legitimate gift of prophecy. It, there is not one today. Then we come to 1 Corinthians eleven three through 10. And this is a very important passage. Why had you turn to it so you can uh, examine it? And I'm not going to go through it other than just to read it and to make some comments. Uh, Paul is talking ultimately about the, the symbols of authority here. And the symbols of authority are not for other human beings. They're for the angels, showing respect for authority, uh, that's evidenced by their 
uh, head covering uh, to the to the an- angels. And so in verse 3, he says, But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. What he is saying is the authority. That's what head means. It's the Greek word kephale. And there have been numerous people who have done extensive studies of every use of kephale in classical Greek and Koine Greek. And uh, there's a few people who say, no, 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 it actually means the source, source of a river in like three places. And then the, a lot, most of the others say, no, it doesn't. You're reading that into it. It has the idea of headship. And in this, it certainly does. Uh, the head of Christ is God. The source of Christ is not God. That's heresy. Jesus Christ is eternally the second person of the Trinity. He doesn't have a source. It's eternal God. Uh, the head of woman is, is man. And that it has to do with authority. And the head of every man is Christ. Christ is not the source of us. He saved us, but that would not be right to say that's, that's a source. So we would translate the authority of every man is Christ. Every male. Your authority is Christ. You serve Christ. The head of woman is man. The man is the head of the home. Now, that doesn't give him the right uh, to abuse that authority. We all know that men, there are men who have abused this, men who twist it in many different ways, um, but that is not legitimate. Uh, the man, the, the flip side of authority is responsibility and leadership. And that means that the man is responsible, the husband, the father is responsible for the spiritual uh, the, the spiritual health of the family. And he is responsible for leading the family uh, spiritually and setting the spiritual priorities and making sure that everybody is, is focused in walking with, with the Lord. And you don't do that by uh, berating people or forcing people to do certain things, but you set the tone through your own life. So the authority of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. All these, there's an authority line here. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. Why? Because you're, uh, you're under the authority of Christ. And so you should not have your head covered. But it says that clearly that men will pray, males will pray, males will prophesy. In contrast, it also says, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. Now, there's a lot of disagreement over this, but here you have shaved versus hair and and shaved versus covered at the end of verse 6. So it appears that the hair is the covering. And I've gone around with other people about that, and I just don't see it, never have. Uh, it is the woman's hair. And what we're talking about is, is a relative length, not an absolute length. I remember one time about 24 years ago, 25 years ago, Pastor Theme came in. I just, you know, minding my own business, walking through the conference room and said, Robbie! How short do you think a man's hair ought to be? What does it mean when a man shouldn't have long hair? I said, well, I just think that in different cultures, the man's hair needs to be shorter than the general length of a woman's hair. I said, I think I've come to that conclusion too. That's good. So, 
I think that's what the issue is. It's a sign of authority, uh, a recognition of the biblical authority that's over you. In verse 7, it said, A man ought to not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man because of, she's created to be the helper of man. And remember, we see the word glory has to do with importance and significance. The woman's role is important to the man. She's his aids or his helper. God created the woman to help him so that together they could both glorify God. In verse 8, for man is not from woman, but woman from man. Eve was created from the side of Adam, nor was man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this reason, very important, he's making a logical deduction here. This is the conclusion. For this reason, what he just said the woman ought to have a symbol on her head of authority on her head because of the angels. So this is part of angelic conflict. Then we have another passage in 1 Timothy 2. This is one that's hotly debated. I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere. And the word there is males on air. That the males pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. That means they're... What does James say? Wash your hands, you sinners. Just another way of saying you need to confess your sin. Be in fellowship. Uh, Lifting up holy hands, you have confessed sin before you pray. Without wrath, wrath and doubting. See, you've been cleansed of sin. So you're praying without wrath or doubting or any of the other sins. In like manner also, so he's making a comparison. This is what men are to do. Males are leaders in the home and in the church, and they should be leading in prayer. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, so they're not distracting to to men, uh, with propriety and moderation. That doesn't mean you wear a burqa. Doesn't mean you look like somebody pulled the tent cover down around a table. But that you are modest, not with braided hair or gold, not distracting, showing off how much you have. Nothing wrong with wearing jewelry but you don't want to be ostentatious and make that the focal point. The focal point is on your character, not your outer appearance. That's the whole point of that. A woman is, it's proper for a woman professing godliness. She's spiritually, growing spiritually with with good works. That's the focal point. And then Paul says, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. Over in 1 Corinthians, 4, I mean, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, I mentioned earlier, it said women are to keep silent in the church. If they have a question, let them ask their husbands at home. So Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Now, this word teach is a technical term in the pastoral epistles. It refers to the formal instruction of the pastor or the other, any of the pastors in the local church of teaching the Word of God in the meeting of the church. It is not used of informal situation when you got two or three couples sitting around the table and they're just talking about uh, what they're learning in the Word of God and asking questions and giving answers. That's informal. This is talking about the formal teaching and instruction of the local church. That's used all through the pastoral epistles. So a woman is not to have that kind of position or to have authority over a man. And, not, and to have authority over a man. I remember when Elizabeth Elliot, who was very well known because she was the widow of Jim Elliot, who was martyred down 
uh, in Ecuador because he and three or four other uh, men, including Nate Saint and some others, were, were down trying to reach a tribe of cannibals, the Alka Indians, and they, they were all slaughtered. And she wrote a book. She wrote many books. She had a great ministry over a period of her life. She had wrote many books. Uh, the story there is a great one if you've never read it, Through Gates of Splendor. And, um, but she came to Dallas Seminary. She was the first woman allowed to speak from the pulpit in Chafer Chapel. And she misquoted the verse. And there were two guys, third-year students at Dallas Seminary, sitting next to each other about a third of the way back from the front, who looked at each other and said, it doesn't say that. You probably guessed that I was one of them. Tommy Ice was the other one. You probably guessed that too. She said, what Paul says was, I don't permit a woman to teach and have authority. And see, I'm, under, I'm not having authority because I have a th- the, the men up here on the platform have the authority and, and uh, you know, I'm teaching, but I'm under their authority. That's not what the text says. It says you can't teach and you can't have authority over men in the church. Now, that's pretty clear. But why? That's the four in verse 13. See, he goes back to the creation, to Adam and Eve, and the same thing is true in First um, Corinthians eleven, what is eleven nine? Nor was man created for the woman, but the woman for man. He doesn't go to the customs in Corinth, or the customs in Ephesus, or the customs in Israel. Uh, this is how the rabbis did it. He said this goes back to Genesis one, two, and three. It's the creation. It is for everybody. And so in both of these, the rationale is embedded in the creation order. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Now, there's some difficulties uh, understanding those verses, and I'm not going through all of that now. So that's that's how we're set up. So let's go to to, uh, Romans 1. Romans 1 I'm just going to go through this. I've exegeted this, talked about this, but there's a couple of points I want to make, and then we'll drive it home. So Paul shifts gears after his introduction, the first 17 verses, and he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The wrath of God is always a term that refers to God's judicial punishment in history. It's not talking about the lake of fire in the future. It's talking about God's punishment within the boundaries of the creation of man and the uh, great white throne judgment. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So the men to whom this wrath comes are those who are suppressing truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known about God is manifest in them. So, so this helps us understand what this ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, it has to do with, with rejecting both the internal and the external witness of God in the creation. Okay, so this is called natural revelation. God reveals himself through his creation. It says, what may be known about God is manifest in them, that is internally, 
they, there's something in us that when we look at anything God created, it reverberates in the center of our soul, and we can suppress it or not. And God has its manifest in them or uh, made apparent in them, for God has shown it to them. So it's external. There's external and internal manifestation. Then he explains that. He says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are seen. Isn't that great? His invisible attributes are seen clearly, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. We understand he's the creator. We understand he's omnipotent. And to such a degree that we no longer can say, well, God, you just didn't tell me you were there. I'd have believed you if you told me you were there. And God says, you know better. And then, and he reveals the fact, that fact to them at that instant, and they're just shut down. And in Romans one twenty one, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So what happens here? They are making an exchange. That will become clear in the next couple of verses. But this is a thought exchange. Although they knew God, they became futile in their thinking. So they went from this legitimate awareness of God to where now they're empty in their thinking. That's the exchange that took place with their negative volition, and their foolish hearts are darkened. Then it goes on to say, professing to be wise, they became fools. So so now what we're talking about is foolishness with respect to to, uh, worship. They changed or exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. So they're, they're going to worship something different. And so in this, the first exchange is a thought exchange. In this one, it's an exchange of worship. They're worshiping nature rather than God. Verse 23, and change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And verse 25, who exchange the truth of God for the lie. That's the third exchange. They're exchanging truth for a lie. It's not just somebody else's opinion. Never let yourself be deceived by that. It's not their opinion. It's a lie. That's how God represents it. It's not the truth. They exchange the truth of God for the lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. How many options are there? How many religions are there? Two. You're either worshiping the creature or you're worshiping the creator. Those are the only two options. That's what Paul says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You're either worshiping the truth or you're worshiping a lie. And everything flows, flows from that. And then there's another exchange that relates to a sexual exchange. 
Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. It's, it's a pulling back of the restraint of the sin nature. For even their women exchange the natural use for what is against nature. See, you have two options, that which is natural and that which is against nature. Likewise, also the men. Likewise means in the same way leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. One of the things that this points out, and I don't think I've ever pointed it out, is what goes along with worshiping nature and worshiping the creature is a shift to sexual perversion and uh, homosexuality. And this is played out in a number of, of, um, a number of different ways here. Um, let me see. I've got a great, uh, great quote here somewhere. If I don't use it now, I will, will later. And uh, here it is. The link between homosexuality and paganism uh, was in, uh, laid out in Newsweek's article of July 2009 on polyamory, which is the relationship of three or more people of the same sex or an opposite sex one in there. And what they argue is that, that uh, and what they display in the article is that people who live, leave a Judeo-Christian background end up pagan, and what happens is it breaks down uh, their sexual mores, and where it ends up is in uh, homosexuality. It's breaking down those barriers that God created, and that's what happens in this. So I'm going to remind you of this. This is a worldview. Most of what people see in a worldview is like an iceberg, and it's beneath the surface. You only see a few things above the surface. So we have metaphysics, which talks about ultimate reality, which is God, or if you're a pagan, it's going to be matter or energy or something in the creation. And from that flows your way in which you think. How do we know what we know? And we live in a world today that has rejected rationalism. One of the reasons you reject rationalism is the defense of rationalism is based on a rational argument. So it's circular, and that means it's fallacious. Uh, what about empiricism? Well, you can always discover something tomorrow that makes your other 99 observations invalid. So empiricism can't lead you to absolute truth. Now, rationalism and empiricism can lead you to a lot of things, but they can't, they're, they're, they can't lead you to absolute truth, and they're not 100%. And when people realize that, they go, how can I have any hope or meaning in life? They can't st you can't live as a skeptic. So they eventually end up going, all right, I've just got to believe in something. So they pick something out of thin air, and they believe in that and impute to that deity. So out of epistemology comes your ethics, what's right, what's wrong. And in all your nature religions, it all ends up breaking down everything into everything's okay. And you have sexual perversion, and all of these other things flow from that. It breaks down the barriers for heterosexual sex, it breaks down the barriers of sexual identity. It breaks down the barriers for so-called gender and results in so-called gender confusion. All because 
It breaks down these, these barriers. God created, notice in Genesis 1, how many times you see after its kind, after its kind, after its kind, God's creating barriers. God created male and female. There are barriers there. And when they deny those barriers, then everything starts to fall, fall apart. And what's happening is they've exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and so the foundation in their worldview is a lie. And from this point on, they're doing what? They're worshiping and serving the creature. But I'm going to change that because it's not just a creature implies a living thing. They're worshiping and serving the creation. You go through all of your ancient myths, your Egyptian myths, your Babylonian myths, Greek myths, Roman myths, Aztec myths, uh, Aztec myths, uh, various Hindu myths, various uh, Chinese myths, uh, they, they all end up worshiping the creation. They're nature religions. And ultimately, what you see is one of two options. Option one is you worship the creator and you see the creator-creature distinction. That's the biblical view. God is a personal, infinite God. He is imminent, which means he's present to his creation, and he's also transcendent. And he creates a finite universe. He's infinite. He's the only infinite there is. And so I have this black line here, which is a barrier. There is a complete disjunction between God and man. But on the right side, God creates an impersonal universe, and that's the circle. And within this circle exists God, man, and nature. And in the ancient world, this was called the great chain of being. And it is... uh, Aristotle wrote about it. It's present in all ancient religions, nature religions, pantheism, and that. And so we ask the question, what's the chain of being? It is also called the continuity of being, or the Latin was the scala natura. The French, the echelle d'etre, my French is horrible, or the chain of being. It is a hierarchy of static, unchanging forms with God as the being, ultimate being or unmoved mover, the good, the absolute, etc., at the top, and angels, humans, animals, plants, all the way down to, to inanimate objects. But the thing is, in all of this, uh, everything shares in essence. There's one essence, and everything shares in it. Some have more of it. Uh, some has uh, less of it. But everything is reducible to this one essence, and that's called monism. Uh, Peter Jones, I mentioned earlier, calls it twoism. I like using the real terms that adults use throughout history, and that's monism, that it ultimately reduces to one, to one thing. June Singer, another pagan, writes, androgyny is the sacrament of monism. See, Paganism is going to impact sexuality in a horrible way. And so this is what happens. Uh, Rushduni, R.J. Rushduni, Rusus Rushduni, he was post-mill and dominionist, but he was a good, good uh, commentator on these things. He said, apart from biblically governed thought, the prevailing concept of being has been that being is one and continuous. It's one. It's, it's what Peter Jones called oneism versus twoism. Everything is reducible to one thing and continuous. God, or the gods, man, and universe are all aspects of one continuous being. 
Degrees of being may exist so that there are a hierarchy of gods as well as a hierarchy of men can be described, but all consist of one undivided and continuous being. Now, I'm going to skip some quotes here and go to this chart. That's what it looks like. Everything's within the triangle. God, then angels or spirit beings and human beings, animal, vegetation, rock, dirt, but they all share the same being. Whereas Christianity is God's outside of it and is a creator-creature distinction. Understanding that is necessary before you can understand what the Bible really says about why men and women are different in this age, in this generation. See, when you grew up and I grew up, we were still heavily influenced by by what was called modernism, and we understood a certain amount of things uh, that is not understood today because being consistent with monism, what they're ending up with is an absolute fluidity. That's why you can make up your own reality every day. So we'll come back to this because I don't want to overload you too much. This gets into some heavy stuff, but it gives us a mental framework for understanding the world around us and why it's just gone crazy. It's because people have been brainwashed through their education and everything. They can create their own reality, but be whatever they want to be, male, female, any one of the other 69 options, whatever it is, they can make it up as they go along. Because they're their own God. Isn't that what Satan promised to Eve? Now, there's nothing new about this. Satan just manages to put a new coat of paint on it every century or two. But all of this goes back to the old paganism, and it's all the same thing. So we'll come back and talk about that next time before we start getting into some of the details because we have to understand that the way Bible looks at things is categorically opposed to all of the other systems which are basically doing, uh, with a few differences, doing the same thing. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study tonight, to think about how we think, to think about how our culture thinks, to understand what these, these difficult issues are so that we can think biblically, not being conformed to the world. We, we want to choose the path of Scripture, not the path of Satan. We want to have our ultimate authority as the Bible and not Babel. We have to learn to think as you think. Help us as we do that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.